All right, students, last time we started talking about book four and Dido's descent into madness. This time we are going to conclude that uh, we are going to get down that slide. We are going to get to the bottom of things. We are going to see the denouement of this situation, the conclusion of this situation. And so we recall that we began book four with Dido having just heard about the journeys and the travails and the losses and the tragedies of Aeneas. And so now she is caught by love's pain and press. She literally has a crush on Aeneas. And this is partially because of Eros being sent to her uh, by Venus. And this is potentially also uh, symbolically because she has been alone for so long. Of course, her husband has been gone, Sychaeus, and she swore off men after Pygmalion killed him. And she has used that as an excuse not to marry a local African chieftain named Jarvis. But she's been away from someone for so long, and this Aeneas, he's so kingly, he's so handsome, he has such a beautiful young son, he leads these people, he's so noble, he's been through so much. It's very much hard not to see him as a very eligible bachelor. And in any case, uh, Dido is in a pickle. She knows that she has sworn off all men and that she should make an, al an alliance through marriage with a local chieftain like Jarvis. My goodness, she just cannot get over this Aeneas who looks so much like Apollo. We recall also that Juno then enters the fray and she decides to come up with a plan and asks for the help of Venus. Recalls to us very much Hera doing the same thing, getting the belt of the graces, the zone of the graces from, uh, from Aphrodite in the Iliad. But in this case, it seems that Venus has the sight of her hand. She seems to understand that if Juno wishes to go against fate, who will win? Fate or Juno? Fate. And so Venus says she serves fate. That said, Juno creates a hailstorm. During this hailstorm, Aeneas and Dido happen to be out hunting. Aeneas looks like which god, golden-haired and beautiful during this time, looking so studly, yes? Apollo. Apollo himself, like the shining sun. Exactly, exactly. And then they go into a cave, and then they do as Hera and uh, Zeus did in the Iliad when they lay in a golden cloud. And so, this is where one of the issues begins, because Dido calls it marriage to cover up her fault. Aeneas does no such thing. Which God then goes to see Aeneas to bring him back to reality while he is wearing a purple mantle that he was given by Dido. Yes? Mercury. Mercury indeed. And so, let us begin there. Mercury says, Are you now laying the foundation of high Carthage? And in so recalling to Aeneas his responsibility, his duty to his people, to his descendants, to his son, Ascanius himself, the light of the future Romans who had himself a light above his head, a comet that uh, gave Anchises reason to live, even though he has now died. Now, Aeneas, rather than thinking about loving Dido, a life with her, he burns to flee. Again, notice that what sort of imagery here that we see so frequently in Book 4, yes? Fire imagery, whether it be your desire for Aeneas when you're Dido, whether it be your desire to flee when you are Aeneas, or whether it be the passionate hatred you start to feel for Aeneas when he tries to slink off like a snake in the night. Fire. Let's begin now. So, Aeneas, first major mistake, I mean, well, not first major mistake, you might say his first major mistake was the very notion that he entertained of being with Dido. The second one would, of course, be uh, laying with her as he is attempting to lay the foundation of uh, Carthage at this point. The third mistake would definitely be this. 
He tells his men to equip the fleet in silence. They're an entire people. They have several ships, at least seven of them. Do you think that they are going to be able to equip their fleet without uh, emissaries of Dido seeing this and then getting word to her? Absolutely not. It's a very foolish thing to imagine. And in any case, the men do so. While yet, Dido suspects nothing. But, Dido, for who can deceive a lover? Lines 396. Rumor, of course, lets her know. And recall that rumor is that which starts small but gets big. Goes from the ground all the way up to the sky. It's covered in wings because rumor gets around. Covered in eyes because everything people see can become a rumor. Covered in ears and tongues. Because rumor is both true and falsity. Anything that can be spread by means of words. And so, Dido here hears, or excuse me, Dido here hears a true rumor. And she rages frantically. Her mind useless as a bacante. Recall that the bacantes are the, they are the, uh, the bacchae sometimes they are called, are the, the votive priestesses, the lady worshippers of Bacchus, god of wine and frenzy. And in fact, there's a very famous play called the Bacchae, where um, uh, Pentheus, who is then king of Thebes, is, has his head ripped off by his own mother when she is in a Bacchic frenzy. When you are Bacchic, when you are mad and insane, can you use your reason? No. Can you do horrific things that you would never do if you were in control of your own wits? Yes. So horrific, you can even rip off the sun of your head and think it was a lion. And that is... The denouement of the Bacchae. Greeks, pretty weird people. Yeah, that's why we read them. We don't read normal people. You kidding me? In any case, Dido confronts Aeneas. <gasps> Deceiver! Do you flee me? She says. Oh, goodness. Is everybody's hair standing on end right now? Oh, this is awkward. This is so awkward. I gave you my honor. And now all the surrounding peoples, all the Africans hate me. Even my own People hate me. I did this all for whom? I did this for you. Oh, what an accusing finger. You, 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 Aeneas. How dare you? In any case, I have lost my only claim to reach the stars. She has lost her what? What is the immortal part of a human that Agamemnon cared so much about that Diomedes said, don't even worry about him dissing us, Thinalus, because it is his name that will remain forever in infamy or famousness. What is it about you that is your immortal aspect for these Greeks and Romans? Reputation. Your reputation, the story of you, that which can be passed on about you. Exactly so. Your body dies, but your story lives on. That is what it means to be legendary, that people still read and speak of you. And so Aeneas responds. And I would describe this as a very weak, very weak response to Dido. She's looking for a reason that he is trying to leave, and especially a reason why he's trying to slink off in the dark. And this is his reason. I did not wish to hide, but also, ooh, this is him digging himself quite deeper. This is a direct quote from 456 to 457 in the Mandelbaum. I have never held wedding torches as a husband. is a stinging thing to say. He says, well, technically, even though we lay together, we never created a contract indicating that I would stay with you afterwards, so I am actually 
free to do as I wish. That doesn't go over super well. And then, of course, fate constrains me. As it did when it destroyed my city. Which I would have made again. Had I not been commanded to Italy. And so this is a slightly better way of putting things. But he says that... It is fate that constrains him. And it's not his own willpower that leads him away from Dido. He would love to stay with Dido. But he doesn't get to do what he wants. Because he is a leader and has a responsibility to whom? His people, his descendants, his fate. It's outside of his power. And so even though he personally may love her and have great feeling for her, his responsibility is not to his own personal emotions, but to the destinies of his people and his child, Ascanius in particular. Who is it that he has a responsibility to at this moment? Dido, who he is laden with and changed the reputation of, who he could marry, or to his own people? It's very ambiguous. It's a very nasty situation because it's hard to parse out where his responsibility truly should be. In any case, he says, you founded your own city, but the shade of my father, and again, still relying on his father, very much like how Dante will rely on Virgil, who he will describe as his teacher, his master, his father, in the Inferno next year. Um, until he can think for himself in the Paradiso, with a representation of his mind, Beatrice, leading him on until he meets Bernard. But he says, the shade of my father Anchises drives me to consider Ascanius my duty to him. He says, he sees the connection between his family members. It's he sees the past, his father, he sees the present him, and he sees how his present situation and his present thoughts and actions lead towards the future, the future that he needs for his son, the best possible future for his son. And that best possible future is not where? In Carthage. His son is meant to rule Italy. Italy where the Romans will rule. The greatest people ever to have existed. Carthage cannot give him that sort of future. And so... Dido denounces Aeneas. She says, you are no son of a god. Recall that that was a common thing for heroes to say when talking smack before engaging with each other in the Iliad to suggest that a man was not the son of the man he claimed to be. In fact, who was it that very famously was called uh, no son of Tidius in book five because he was sitting off by himself, not attacking gods, even though he was not supposed to? Yes? Diomedes. Very good. Remember that Athena said... When he was not attacking Ares, why is it you are not attacking Ares? You are no son of Sthenelus, who though he was a short man, or excuse me, not Sthenelus, but uh, Tidius, Sthenelus is his lieutenant. Tidius was a short man, but a brave fighter. And Diomedes responds, oh, well, yeah, you told me not to fight against Ares unless you came and gave me additional instructions. In any case, it's calling someone not the son of their father is a deep insult. And calling somebody not the son of a god, which in this case would be Aeneas' mother, also a deep insult, though, depending on your opinion of Venus, perhaps not as much. Is there no righteousness in the world, she asks. She, like Ripius, now questions, is there justice in this world? Or can deep injustice like this be done to her, a monarch? Another time injustice is done to her. Not only has her husband been killed in the past, but now she has, in her own mind, been betrayed by Aeneas. And that's something I want to consider for the seminar on Thursday, is Dido betrayed by Aeneas? Or is she betrayed by fate? Or is this just how the cards fall? Is nobody at fault? It does not seem like that is the it does not seem like that is the case. Oh, I am whirled along by theories. 
To be taken by the Furies means to be taken by extraordinary negative emotion. It means to be put in such a situation that you are literally, or figuratively in this case actually, out of your what? Mind. Mind. She's out of her mind. She is so upset right now. And when a human is out of their mind, they are very what? Very dangerous. Extremely dangerous. That's why we lock them up often. She says, go then to Italy, and after I die, I will haunt you forever and everywhere. Which actually literally could be done today through Instagram. Because somebody's Instagram could keep popping up even after they die, which is a very interesting and weird thing to think about. In any case, Aeneas longs to comfort her. And this is a very human element. He does still feel for her how he feels for her, but he knows he has to go. This is that strange limbic space between being with a person and not being with a person. It still takes you time to what? Even though you use the words to break up, you're still sort of whatted together. Connected by your what's. Your feelings for the person. It takes much more time for your emotions to catch up with your mind. Of course, that's why breakups are so difficult. And so, and this one especially difficult, Aeneas longs to comfort, but he turns to his preparations, he turns to his responsibility. This is a symbol for him turning from her back towards his people. The ships are set into water. Dido then requests, and again, I said that Dido will often show, she shows twice elements of being a witch. Who can recall the first sort of witchy thing that it was that she did? It was very witchy. It was super witchy. It involved some cattle, and some guts. Anybody? Yes? Oh, she tries to see the future of her husband. Yeah, she cuts the belly. She eviscerates cattle. And then looks at their steaming hot, because remember, things are hot on the inside because they're warm-blooded. Uh, 98.6 for us. Probably hotter for cattle. I'd have to look it up. And looks at the steaming guts and then interprets signs. Apparently, uh, her interpretation was a little bit off or the signs weren't showing that day. And so, she requests Anna, have Aeneas wait to grant her empty time. It's very sad. It's like, say, extending your breakup, saying, oh, we can't break up now because we have finals in two weeks, and that'll put us on an emotional roller coaster. Much better if we just break up after finals. It's like, what is that time? Are you still growing with that person? Or are you just putting things off that need to be done? Is that empty time? Yes, of course. And so she says, even if I can't be with him, at least he can just not go away yet. But fate hardens Aeneas' heart. Much like... Uh, uh, Pharaoh has his heart hardened in the Exodus story, and Dido despairs. Well, Dido will now begin her true descent. She crazily wanders the city, and while she's wandering the city line 620 to 664, she, she sees ghastly faces where there are none. She hears voices where there aren't any. It's like she can't get over the stigma of having broken her word and being left and being hmm, and being punished for this fact. It's like she can hear people talking about her wherever she goes, even when they are not talking. She is becoming delusional. She is hallucinating. We would even uh, say, depending on the strength of these hallucinations, that she is becoming schizophrenic. Her mind is splitting as she is splitting down the middle. She dreams even of Aeneas and is feeling left abandoned. She's starting to lose her grip on reality. She is becoming more and more what to everyone around her. Not just distant, but also dangerous. 
And so, most of all, she is dangerous to herself. She resolves to die. She has Anna, her sister, best friend, build a pyre for a magical love ritual. This makes sense because she's a little bit witchy and she likes to do witchy things like cast spells. And so this magical love ritual will use Aeneas' sword and she will invoke dark goddesses. Hecate, Hecate you will see again actually in Macbeth, though that is probably an interpolation by Thomas Middleton. Hecate is one of the aspects of Artemis. It is her dark witchy aspect. In fact, Hecate is the goddess that kills newborn babies, or kills babies in birth, or kills mothers in birth. She is like the Lady of the Silver Arrows, who kills people at night. She also calls on Erebus. Erebus is the name of one of the primordial goddess gods of night, of darkness. And she also calls on chaos. Does it seem like she's trying to make something good happen? No. Night, childbirth, death goddess, and chaos. No. Yes, sir. Um, why didn't Venus or Juno help her after each other sometimes? That's an excellent question. Why didn't Venus or Juno go to help? Dido. That seems like a strong indication of the fact that the gods do or do not truly care about mortals. Do not, as if they do truly use them as instruments for their own designs. Dido seems to have been used by everybody in this case. Aeneas to some extent, Venus to some extent, and Juno. She seems to have been dealt a really terrible hand in this case. So that's a great question because Dido... Even in the last lines of the book, and I hope we have time to read them, so everybody be ready to look at the last page of book four. We will talk about what was fated for Dido, and we will see that all of this, sadly, did not have to happen in this way. In any case, she then considers, what are my options? She has a moment of clarity, a moment of lucidity, and she thinks... Could I still marry Yarbus? And she thinks, no, ew, A, I don't like Yarbus. B, would he even accept me after I've broken my promise? It's so obvious what I'm trying to do at this particular moment. This Aeneas guy showed. Rumor gets around that I lay with him. Then he leaves. Then I want to marry Yarbus. It's clear that he's my what pick? My second pick. He probably won't even take me at this moment. Well, what if I leave with the Trojans? Well, she thinks she'll just be a second what then? Man comes in. Lays with woman who is not, he is not supposed to, and then absconds with her, takes her away. Where have we seen that story before? Helen of Troy in Paris. Very good. Very good. She thinks, I can't do that. I can't abandon my people in that way. I cannot be a second Helen. And then she thinks, notice this dark turn. Why don't I just murder all the Trojans? They're in my care right now. But that would even further destroy the immortal part of her, the reputation. She would be doing such an unthinkably unforgivable thing. She would be killing those who are under... If, if she is queen, then the kingdom that she has, Carthage, is her home. Then she, she is extending the what to all of these individuals. That is the holiest of the Greek and the Roman customs. The Zinnia. Right. If she destroys them, they are all her guests then she has done the worst thing you can possibly do. She is like the suitors of Odysseus. Then she will certainly lose the immortal part of herself, and even the king of the gods will be against her. She thinks, no, none of these options work. The only option left to me is to 
to die as you deserve. And yet, even that we will see is not the only option. Part of the problem to this, and I often say this, is do you think these are the only options open to Dido, or that these are the only options that present themselves to her in her mind? Are they the only options that occur to her in this moment? What do we think? Yes. Yes, it is not the case that these are the only options. But she feels like she is pushed back into a what? A wall or a corner. She's cornered. And so she sees narrowly rather than broadly. And so we have an intermezzo. That means uh, an in-between moment. And Mercury shows up again. Because apparently Aeneas has been dawdling. He didn't take seriously what it was Mercury says. And Mercury actually says uh, one of the most famous quotes in this book. And we may all disagree with it at this but it is a funny thing that Mercury says. He shows up again to tell Aeneas to leave and says, An ever uncertain and inconstant thing is woman. Perhaps not true of all women, certainly not who from the Odyssey. Penelope. And yet, with Dido, we do know that her emotions are currently stable or rather unstable. And because she's unstable, when we say that somebody is unstable, they can act how? Irrationally. They can act irrationally at any moment. It's like a dog who bites. Do you know when it's going to bite you? No. Well, what about when a human bites? All the worse. So, Mercury says, you need, you need to get on it. You need to move. And so the Trojans bolt. Dido wakes up. And it's like Penelope waking up every day except for the day that Odysseus returned. Because when she wakes up, they are gone. And so... She takes Aeneas' sword, which apparently he left in such a rush that he did not even take his sword. And she takes that sword to herself. And in fact, here, let's pause on our writing. This will be, I believe, our last slide of the day. So we have plenty of time here, rarely. And let us now open our books to page 102. 102. You will have time to write this. In fact, actually, I'm going to start on 101. It's going to be a fairly extended one. Let's start on line 889, at the very bottom of page 100, the last two lines, that last stanza begins. But Dido, desperate. Beside herself with awful undertakings, eyes bloodshot and rolling like a horse first exposed to battle, and her quivering cheeks flecked with stains and pale with coming death. Does it look like she's very put together right now? Absolutely not. She is coming apart at the seams. Now bursts across the inner courtyards of her high palace, of her palace, excuse me. She mounts in madness that high pyre, unsheathes the dart and sword, a gift not sought for such an end. And when she saw the Trojans close in her familiar bed, she checked her thought in tears a little, lay upon the couch and spoke her final words. I want you just to notice before there, a gift not sought for such an end. Again, indication of this not being faded. And so she says her final words. O oh, relics, dear, while fate and God allowed, receive my spirit and free me from these cares. For I have lived and journeyed through the course assigned by fortune. Again, notice fortune being referenced here. And now my shade will pass illustrious beneath the earth. I have built a handsome city, 
have seen my walls rise up, avenged a husband, won satisfaction from a hostile brother. Oh, fortunate, too fortunate, if only the ships of Troy had never touched our coasts. She spoke and pressed her face into the couch, I shall die unavenged, but I shall die. She says, thus, thus, I gladly go below to shadows. May the savage Darden drink with his own eyes this fire from the deep and take with him the omen of my death. Then Dido's words were done, and her companions can see her fallen on the sword, just like who, which Achaean, who himself ashamed, let himself fall upon his sword, himself not seeing the options remaining to him. Yes? Aias the Greater, now called Ajax the Greater. The Greater Ajax. The blade is foaming with her blood. Notice this imagery. Her hands are blood-stained. Now clamor rises to the high rooftop. Now rumor riots through the startled city. The lamentations, keening, shrieks of women, sound through the houses. Heavens echo mighty wailings, even as if an enemy were entering the gates with all of Carthage or ancient tear and ruins and angry fires rolling across the homes of men and gods. Where two can enemies stand? Just outside your walls or even within your own what? Within your own city? Within your own heart? Within your own mind? Because who takes the life of the queen of Carthage? The queen herself. Where can evil exist in this world? Anywhere. Your enemy can be anywhere. That is the idea behind a snake being in the garden when you re read Macbeth next year. It will be the case that the king sees a flower, but beneath that flower lurks a snake. Because everything is not as it was. That's quite right. And Anna heard, appalled and breathless. She runs anxious through the crowd, her nails wounding her face, her fists, her breasts. She calls the dying Dido by her name. And was it then for this, my sister? Did you plan this fraud for me? Was this the meaning waiting for me when the pyre, the flames, the altar were prepared? She says, did you deceive me too, just as that man Aeneas deceived you? Deceit is everywhere. This place is described as full of fire and deceit. It is like a living what here? Hell, just as the falling Troy was. It's as if everywhere the Trojans are, there is what with them? Hell itself. My goodness. What shall I now? Deserted, first lament. And this is something Dido didn't think of. She herself felt deserted. But who has now been deserted by her? Her best friend, Anna, but also her entire people. That is part of the problem of this singular thinking, this suicidal act. She thinks, welcome, that it just take your seat, just take your seat. She thinks that she has been deserted, that she's all alone. But was she truly all alone? Did she still have a best friend? Yes. Did she still have a people with a responsibility to them? Yes. Did she forget all of this, all of her most sacred responsibilities, just because of this powerful emotion which afflicted her? Yes. Do you see the power, the negative, evil power of emotion here? Do you see why the Romans wished to be Stoic? Because what is it that emotion can make you forget? That is the most important aspect of your existence. Your what's. Mm. Mm. The responsibilities, right. Because it replaces your, rationa your rationality and your ability to think. It makes you forget what you must know at all times. 
so you must act appropriately in any case. You scorned your sister's company in death. You should have called me to the fate you met. The same sword pain, the same hour, should have taken the two of us away. Did my own hands help build the pyre? And did my own voice call upon our father's gods only to find me heartless far away when you lay dying? It's like 13 reasons why. She's blaming who for the death? Whom for the death of Dido? Herself. Though whose choice was it? Dido's, of course. And had she entered the confidence of her sister Anna, her friend Anna, rather than deceiving her and having her help make the pyre, what might Anna have been able to do? Perhaps she might have been able to remind her of her responsibilities or of the objective situation, not just the subjective feeling that she had. Perhaps Anna could have helped. But now, for the rest of her life, she'll have to do what? Wonder if she could have helped. She will have to live with that evil word, if. So, you have destroyed yourself and me, my sister, the people and the elders of your Sidon and all your city. Let me bathe your wounds in water, and if any final breath still lingers here, may my lips catch it up. This said, she climbed the high steps, and this gets very sad. Then she clasped her half-dead sister to her breast and moaning embraced her, dried the black blood with her dress. You can just imagine how tender this is. Dido is struck dead. She's dying. She, <laughs> she can barely breathe. And her, her sister holds her up and she's trying to, with her dress, just clean off her face, which <laughs> she's coughing up blood. There's blood everywhere on her and she looks terrible. She's just trying to clean her off. It's very tender. It's very sweet. It's as if she's tending to a child who has her life in front of her, her whole life, and yet this is a, an adult who is now facing her what? Her own death. Right. Trying to lift her heavy eyes. This is, I think, a very sad point. It recalls to me always the land before time and Littlefoot's mother trying to stand up herself after she's been struck down by the Allosaurus. A moment that used to always make me cry when I was young. The queen falls back again. She breathes. The deep wound in her chest is loud and hoarse. <gasps> Three times she tried to raise herself and strained, propped on her elbow. Three times she fell back upon the couch. Three times with wandering eyes she tried to find high heaven's light. Her eyes are apparently gone blind from loss of blood. And when she found it, <gasps> aside, that's her death rattle. <sighs> but then all able Juno pitied her. Long sorrow and hard death, and from Olympus sent Iris down to free the struggling spirit from her entwining limbs. For as she died, and pay close attention here, a death that was not merited or fated, but miserable, and before her time, inspired by sudden frenzy, Proserpina, Persephone, had not yet cut a gold lock from her crown not yet assigned her life to Stygian Orcus, Hades. On saffron wings, dew-glittering iris glides along the, slot, the sky, drawing a thousand shifting colors across the facing sun. That's a rainbow. She halted above the head of Dido, so commanded, I take this lock as offering to Dis. I free you from your body. So she speaks and cuts the lock with her right hand. At once the warmth was gone, the light passed to the winds. Was this how things had to be for Dido, according to the text? No. Her fate 
unlike Aeneas's, was subject to her own what? Her own choices, her own decisions. This dark and terrible end was brought about by whom? Herself. Well, excellent timing, you all. And on that note, have a wonderful day.